Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Romans chapter 9. We are, as I have been talking to you about the last couple of weeks, we are and the beginning of wading out into some of the deepest water in the ocean of God's truth. Some of the deepest currents in the deepest waters of the ocean of God's truth. Things that are challenging, stretching, difficult to understand. And we're going to continue that, and I'm just praying that God as I've been praying and I'll be praying this in my heart as I'm preaching I've asked many to be praying as I'm preaching this morning that God would just help make his truth clear keep me out of the way help me not to say what would be untrue of his word and of him but speak what he wants to speak in the power of the spirit of God Romans chapter 9 Let me give you a setup quickly, a review, just in a minute or two to set the stage. You're going to need to understand this (coughs) in order to understand the thrust of the text that we're going to look at uh, today, beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 8, back up a chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul opened with a great propositional truth related to to those who were followers of Christ, who had been saved. He said, for those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And then what he does for the next 30-some verses is truth after truth, line after line, statement after statement. He packs promise after promise to validate the truth of that opening statement into the 8th chapter of Romans. Then he comes to the end of the chapter and he makes another great summary. He said, not only is there no condemnation at the beginning of the chapter, at the end of the chapter he says, there is no separation from God for those who are his. No condemnation, no separation, and between those two bookends, packed as tightly as any truth is related to the security of the believer, Romans chapter 8 is the most condensed, tightly packed section of the Word of God that over and over again, promise after promise, line after line, proves the truth of the security of the believer. Then Paul comes to the ninth chapter. And the ninth chapter, he opens with a problem, a very significant problem. He turns his spotlight onto the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and he says that he has broken in his heart over the Jewish nation. Why? Because in a wholesale way, the vast majority of the Jews of his day were accursed and cut off from Christ. They weren't people living under no condemnation and people living under no separation from God. It says explicitly that they are accursed and cut off from Christ. If you're a 
cursed and cut off from Christ, you're cut off from God because the only way to get to God is through Christ. So there's a problem. There's a problem. And here's the problem. The nation of Israel is God's chosen nation. He had come in the 12th chapter of Genesis to a man by the name of Abram and he began this nation and he made incredible promises to this man. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless all the peoples on the earth through you. And then Abraham, as the story unfolds in the Old Testament and the Numbers of the Israelites increase generation after generation. God continues to come to them and make promise after promise after promise to them. And those promises included not only earthly, literal, tangible promises like land, but also eternal, spiritual promises like salvation. And so here's the dilemma Paul has just given an entire chapter in Romans 8 about the security of the believer. God, if you're saved, he's going to secure you there. You can take every one of those promises that are just stacked tightly in Romans 8 to the bank of God's vault and the, the funds will be there to cover it. You're secure. And then he looks at Israel and he says... But what about the promises he made to Israel? You see how it throws all of the great teaching of Paul here into question. If he doesn't satisfy and answer the situation of the nation of Israel, if God made promises to them and God's promises to them failed, then how can we trust in the promises of Romans chapter 8 that they will be true for us? I mean, everything hinges upon his answer to this great dilemma. And so what he does is he begins to answer that question, that great dilemma in the sixth verse of the ninth chapter. And we're going to look, and in fact, folks, what he does is for the next three chapters, he works on that one goal, answering looking at Israel, showing that the promises of God toward them have not failed. That's what he says in the first half of verse 6. Listen to it. After he sets up the problem of Israel and their widespread accursed and cut off position, he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he He says, I know the condition of Israel, kind of in a wholesale way. They're outside of the promises of God. They are not experiencing all of the incredible promises God made to them. But he makes this incredible statement, even in the midst of that reality. He said, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he begins to give the answer. And he makes the second half of the statement in verse 6, and then he unpacks it up to verse 13. And that's what we're going to look at today. And here is the first part of his answer. Verse 6b, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. How can it be possible that God is a promise-keeping God in the face of this 
widespread apostasy of Israel. And Paul says, here's why. Because God never made his promises to all of ethnic Israel. That was never his intent. It's not everyone that is of the bloodline of Abraham that is a part of the nation of Israel. He says that, he hints at that in verse 6b, and then in the beginning of verse 7, he says it explicitly. Look at it. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, you're not a part of the chosen people of God, Israel, just because you are a part of the lineage of Abraham, the one to whom God made the promises and the subsequent generations to whom God made the promises. The promises of God have not failed. And here's why. They were never made to the entire nation. So, you see, the problem is not with God, Paul's saying. The problem is with, the key is, lies in the fact of, are we properly interpreting who the promises were made to? That's the question. Because not all Israel is Israel. You see, in the biological, in the lineage, the nation of Israel, within all of Israel as a nation, there is a true Israel within Israel. Out of all of the descendants of Abraham, not all of the descendants of Abraham are truly children of Abraham. There is true children of Abraham within the descendants of Abraham. There's a remnant within the whole group. There is a select group within the larger group. That's the point that he's making in the second part of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. So he's beginning to talk here about the election of God. And here's what he does. He reaches back into Israel's history. And he grabs two examples. We, two weeks ago, we just breezed over them in rapid fashion. We're going to look deeply today. But he looks at two examples to prove the point that he is making that God's elect have always been a remnant. And to do that, he goes all the way back to Abraham himself, to the 12th chapter of Genesis where God had called Abraham and made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation and bless all the peoples of the earth through him. He goes all the way back to that very Genesis of this called out people and looks at Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Listen. I'm going to read verses 7, 8, and 9, and then we're going to unpack those. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Let me just identify the key point here. Paul is identifying who the children of God are. 
It's not all of the natural descendants of Israel. It's not all of the natural descendants of Abraham. It's not all of the natural seed of Abraham. There is a select group within the group that are God's elect. Case in point, Ishmael and Isaac. Now let me just give you real, very rapidly the background here because we're going to draw a quote out of the story of Ishmael and Isaac that Paul uses here in the ninth chapter. So I need to give you the setup quickly. God came to Abraham, made a promise to him when Abraham had no children. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, bless all the peoples of the earth through you. Abraham was already in his 70s. So Abraham listened to God and he went where God told him to go, but no child, no child. Years passed, years passed, no child. And Abraham and Sarah were getting advanced in years. They were reaching the point where they would not physically be able to have children. And so finally, in desperation, Abraham and Sarah took the situation into their own hands. And Sarah said to Abraham, here, take my servant Hagar and I'll give her to you as a wife and you have a child through her so that the promise of God can be fulfilled. And so Abraham did what Sarah said and he had a child by Hagar and named him Ishmael. And then years went by. Year after year, some 13 years, I believe, went by. And Abraham and Sarah had long passed the age of childbearing. They're dead in the sense of being able to produce children. Sarah was already barren, and now she's 89. Abraham is 99. Absolutely impossible through the procreation process for Abraham and Sarah to have children. And God comes to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, you're going to have a child through Sarah. And Abraham says, God, just use Ishmael. Why don't you just use Ishmael? God says, I'm not going to use Ishmael. He's not the child of the promise. I'm going to use the child of the promise. And in Genesis 18.10, here is what the Lord says to Abraham. Listen to it carefully. Genesis 18.10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you, Abraham, about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I'm the God that made you a promise all the way back in Ur of Chaldees when I called you in your 70s. You're 99 years old now. You've tried to accomplish my promise, my promised people through your own work, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work that way. Now you're dead, past the ability of bearing children, and I'm telling you, next year about this time, I'm going to come back and I'm going to accomplish the promise that I made to you. Don't miss that truth right there. God is saying, I am going to do this. Abraham, you are not going to do this. I am going to do this. I'm going to come back about this time next year, and Sarah is going to have a child. It is going to be a child of promise 
And how is that promise going to be realized? The God that made the promise is going to come and fulfill his promise and bring about the child of promise. It's all the work of God that gets it done. That is the point that he is making here. And Paul quotes that phrase in Genesis chapter 18 verse 10 in Romans chapter 9. He reaches back into history and says that God said to Abraham, surely I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Meaning this, Abraham, you're not doing it. God's doing it. It's the promise of God that's going to bring about the child of promise. Let me say that again. It's the promise of God that's going to bring about the child of promise. Not something that you and Hagar do. Then, having made that illustration, Paul gives another, even more powerful, more pointed. You see, it would be possible for some to say, well, I can see why there's a very clear distinction between Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's two children. What's the difference? What's the difference? What do they have that's significantly different between Ishmael and Isaac? They have a different mom. You see, one has this servant of Sarah as the mother, and the other is Sarah herself. And I could easily see, and I believe Paul clearly knew that some could say, well, okay, there's a difference between them. There's not only two different mothers, there's about 13 years of age difference. And so, really it must be this, the promised nation is going to come from Isaac and all of his descendants. And so Abraham gives another example to say, no, that's not how it's going to work. And what he does is he talks about Isaac's children, Esau and Jacob. Listen to what he says. We're now down in verse 10 through 12. And not only so, meaning, Paul's saying, I'm on the same line of thought here. I'm going to give you another example that's even more pointed than the one I just gave. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. First thing I want to point out to you is nestled right in the middle of those three verses is a phrase that is really the heartbeat of what Paul is saying here. It's a bracketed or a phrase that's in um, hyphenated phrase, and it's this, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Focus in on that phrase for a minute. Paul is saying, I'm using the illustration of Esau and Jacob And from their story, I am teaching you something about the election of God. It is the story of Jacob and Esau that shows how the purpose of God according to election remains or stands. What makes it solid? What guarantees it? It's something in the life of Jacob and Esau 
that helps us to understand the truth about God's election. That's what Paul is clearly saying here. It's obvious looking at the text. So here's the question. What do the lives of Esau and Jacob teach us about God's election? Well, let me just give you two categories and then I'll show it to you. First of all, through this example, he's teaching us what God's election does not consist of, first and foremost, and secondly, what God's election does consist of. What God's election does not consist of and what it does consist of. And let me just give you the truth that he's going to drive at and we'll see if we can get there through explanation. The truth is this, that God's election is absolutely unconditional and free. Meaning this, God's election is unconditional. It doesn't depend upon anything in you. There's absolutely nothing in you that has any determination whatsoever on whether God elects or not. It's unconditional and it's free. That means this, that God operates that freely within himself. He has the right to do that and he exercises that right in his election. It's all about him, not about anything external. It's all about him. Now let me show you how he proves that in the example of Esau and Jacob. First of all, Verse 11, what did he say about Esau and Jacob, the two children of Isaac? Verse 11, it says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. So the first thing that he's dealing with here in Jacob and Esau is a time element. Do you see it? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Point is, with Jacob and Esau, God didn't, after they were born, come and say, here Jacob, I'm picking you. Esau, I'm not picking you. That's That is not election. I know that when we talk about election, it sounds like that's what I'm saying, but that is not at all what I'm saying. It's going to take some while, a while to explain that over the next few Sundays. But this arbitrary decision is the farthest thing in the universe from God's election. So it's not just arbitrary, I want you and I want you. Nor is it anything to do with what they did. They weren't even born yet and God elected Jacob and not Esau. They weren't born. You see, the other thing that this does is it just proves that Election is not based upon lineage because in the last example, Ishmael had one mother and Isaac another. But here, the truth is that they were both of the same mother and father and in the womb at the same time. They were twins. There is no advantage one over the other 
whatsoever. They were in the womb at the same time. And the Bible here says, Paul clearly refers back to the example and says, look at God chose them before they were ever born, before they'd done anything. Backing up what truth? That his election is not because of what we do. It's not something that we merit and prove ourselves. It's not even something that he sees that we're going to do in the future. It is not about us at all. And the next statement is going to prove that. Verse 11b. I'm just going to read, let me just read all of 11 again so I can make this really clear. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. God's purpose of election has nothing to do with works. You see, in the first half of the verse, he was saying it was before Esau and Jacob had been born or had done anything good or bad. But he says something far greater here. He's saying, I'm not talking about the time element anymore. I'm just flat out telling you that God's election is not because of works. It wasn't true in Jacob and Esau. It's not true of Anybody that God elects, God's election is not based upon works whatsoever. That's the negative statement about election that he makes. That's what election is not based upon. Not because of works. So he is telling us here that God's election is unconditional. His, it is all and only based upon him and his will. And the next phrase, if he hasn't already so thoroughly proven it, he's going to prove it, in my mind, unequivocally in the next phrase. But before I explain that, let me just... Let me just talk to you from my heart for just a minute. I know pretty confident that there are some of you in here that are struggling with this. Unconditional election. I just want to say to you, I know what you're going through. By personal experience, I know exactly what you're going through. I walked that valley myself. It was difficult for me to work through this. There was a lot in my life, all of my upbringing, that I had to really wrestle deeply with. People that I greatly love, that I had to wrestle deeply about as I'm working through the deep theological currents of this right here. I know if you're struggling, I know and I feel for you, I am not in any way wanting to cause you pain or hardship in your heart. That is not my intention whatsoever. So let me just make that clear. And then secondly, let me 
make something else clear by telling you what I am not saying. I am not saying that unconditional election means that you don't have to do anything in your salvation. I am not saying that at all. I am not saying that unconditional election means that you can be saved without putting your faith in Jesus. You cannot be saved unless you put your faith in Jesus. It's impossible. In order to be justified, you have to put your faith in Jesus. And then I am not saying that unconditional election means that once you get saved, you don't have to worry about the obedience that's supposed to be produced from faith. You do. You have to worry about that. God is calling you and requiring that of you if you're saved. A life where you are learning in growing measure to walk in obedience. So please hear me. I am not saying that unconditional election means, oh, God does what he wants to do, so I don't need to worry about it, and I can live however I want and do whatever I want, and if I'm elect, I'm getting there. That is not the message of the New Testament. But the message of the New Testament is this. It is that God and his election are absolutely unconditional, not contingent upon you, and absolutely free in himself, all and only based upon him and his will and his decision. So let me show you how the last phrase here, just in my mind, unarguably proves that. He says, In order that God's purpose of election, this is verse 11. Let me just read all of it, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, and here comes both the negative that we looked at and the positive statement that we haven't. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. But because of Him who calls. God's purpose of election stands, Paul wrote, because of him who calls. Do you see that? God's purpose of election stands because of him who calls. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now here's a question. Just think through if you have been a student of the word at all? Familiar with Paul's letters and his writings? He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. When Paul talks about works, what does he usually contrast works with? Works as opposed to faith, right? Works as opposed to faith. That's his consistent way of dealing. Let me just give you a couple of verses to highlight that. Romans chapter 3, here's the same letter that we're studying just several chapters back. Paul wrote in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's by faith that we are justified, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
How are you justified? Not by doing good works, but by faith. Galatians chapter 2, 16. This is also Paul's writing. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you hearing the word over and over again? Justified, justified, justified. Justification does not happen by works. It happens by faith. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith. That is his common way of teaching about faith and works. So when he comes here to Romans chapter 9, verse 11, why doesn't Paul write like he usually writes and say this? Let me just read it and insert faith here. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of our faith. I mean, that would seem to be pretty consistent. God's purpose of election stands not because of works, but because of our faith. Why doesn't he say that? Why instead does he change up his normal discussion and say, not because of works, but because of him who calls? Well, here's why. It's really clear when you see it. When I saw it, I was like, oh, my word, it's so obvious. Here's why. Because faith is a condition of justification. Faith is not a condition of election. And what he's talking about here is not justification. He's talking about election. This whole thing is about about election. And what comes before justification and before even faith? It's election. The election of God is eternal. The election of God, he has known that throughout all of eternity who his elect are. So he cannot make election stand because of our faith. It eternally and forever predates our faith. That's why he says that the purpose of God according to election stands or remains because of him who calls. Because of God, not because of our faith, not because of what we do, but only because of the will of God and His decision to elect. So what that does is again, He has said it in about every way I think that He can say it. He says it in Isaac and Ishmael's, but it's a little Maybe not so powerful there because there's a potential scenario, two different mothers. And then he says, let's look at Jacob and Esau before they were born or had done anything either good or bad. And then he says, well, let's take it beyond that. Let's just make the blanket statement truth. It's not because of works, period. And then he gives the positive side. But here's what truly causes God's purpose in election to stand. It's because of him who calls. It's all of God. It's the one, the God who gives the promise, who gets the promise done. So that election is proven throughout this to be unconditional. Unconditional. So application. 
I know these are deep truths. We're dealing with an infinite subject and we've got these little finite minds. I, I love this illustration. It just works so well for me, the way my mind works. We're coming to this ocean of truth about God Himself. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the deep reasons behind God's eternal actions. It's an ocean of truth. And we, in our finite minds, have this little dry sponge. And we come to the ocean and we want so badly to soak up the truth that's in the ocean in our sponge. And we cannot do it. We can get just a little bit of it, but it is infinite because God is infinite. These are the very foundational reasons behind which the infinite, eternal God makes decisions. Why would we think we should be able to fully comprehend His purposes in election? Let me just give you some applicational points here. Remember the dilemma? Romans 9, 1 through 5. Paul had made all these incredible promises of the security of the believer in Romans 8. And then he comes to Romans 9 and says, but look at the nation of Israel. They're a wholesale accursed and cut off. And his reason is that God's promises haven't failed. They haven't failed. The problem is you misunderstood the promise. The promise is not for all Israel, but for a select elect within Israel. It's always been that way. And you can trace that through the entire Old Testament. It's always been that way. And I would take that into our day. It's always that way, the way somebody gets saved. It's never anything but God choosing to do something and then getting it done. That your salvation is a work of God. Jesus said, you can't come to me unless the Father calls you. And then he says, and if the Father calls you, here's what's going to happen. You are going to come. Every time that the father reaches out and he calls Daniel and says, Daniel, come to me unto salvation. I promise you, when he did that, Daniel came. Because God's call accomplishes what he sends it forth for. It's his eternal purpose. And every one of them are going to be fulfilled. That's the promise of Scripture. So here is what we need to do. We don't just say, okay, well, God elects, God does it. Well, I just need to sit back and don't worry about it. No, you, you need to worry about it. You need to think about it. You need to examine yourself. Scripture says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, how can we do that? How can we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Let me just give you a few diagnostic questions to begin to probe around in your heart and in your mind. First one is pretty simple. Do you have faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? We say, wait a minute, Brad. I thought you said 
Election wasn't dependent upon our faith. It's not. But if you're elect and you're saved, then the next step has happened. He's called you to Himself and you've come and you have faith in Him because the call wakes you up from death, gives you life, and gives you the faith. So if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. You cannot be saved unless you have faith in Jesus. And you cannot have faith in Jesus unless He calls you from death to life and gives you that faith. And you cannot be called unless you're the elect. So the question is, do you know if, want to know if you're elect? Well, do you have faith in Jesus? I mean, I don't mean this American faith like, yeah, I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Yeah, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm talking about you really have looked at the claims of Christ and you've come to the realization He actually is God. He is God in the flesh. He went to the cross for me, took my sin, paid its penalty, rose again just like He said He would and all of the Old Testament said He would, proving Himself to be the Messiah and now I'm putting my faith in Him and Him alone. I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm worthy of His judgment and now I'm throwing myself upon His grace and mercy and saying, oh Jesus, save even me. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Jesus? It's the first diagnostic question. Here's another. Are you following Jesus? Are you following? You see, Jesus came and he walked the shores of Palestine and he said, Peter, come follow me. Matthew, get up from the tax collector's booth. Follow me. James and John, leave the nets. Leave the nets. Come follow. And what did they do? What did they do? Pretty simple. They followed. They followed. Here's the point. Here's the point. Every single person that is truly saved, there's going to be some intersection of that salvation with their life so that they're changed. I'm not saying everybody changes at the same rate, but I am saying that there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change. They went from being fishers of fish to fishers of men, collectors of the Roman tax, to spreading the gospel, the beauty and the riches of the truth of God. Right? There's a change. Is there a change in your life? If you look at your life and say, man, I've been now this Christian for 15 years and I'm not different at all than I was. I'd just be saying, am I in the faith? Am I in the faith? There should be a change. How about this? Do you have an appetite for the truth of God? I don't mean do you spend three hours every day reading Leviticus, okay? That's all I'm talking about. But I'm saying that you do have an appetite for spiritual things and you do at times go to the Word of God to learn about the God who 
chose you and sent his son to die for you and loves you and wants to walk with you daily, that you are moving in that direction, not perfectly, but there is movement that way. I'd say, if you don't really care anything about this and you never spend any time in the word of God, you're not really interested in learning any more about him, I'd be saying, wow, I need to examine my life to see if I'm really in the faith. Am I really in the faith? You see, salvation comes with a new heart. A heart of stone that was an enemy of God to a heart that is now in love with God, that is moving toward God. Now, yes, we blow it, we make mistakes. I make many of my own, I promise you that. But are you hungry for the things of God? Do you at times go to see what you can find about God and His truth? Do you have faith? Are you following? Are you learning? Some questions to see if you're in the faith. Let me just say this. Worship team, would you come? I say this in closing. This truth about election. I have the conviction that until you grapple with what the scriptures say about God and his election, until you come to understand, at least in part, with what a finite mind can understand, the truth about God's election, which is this, that God elects you throughout all of eternity past unconditionally, not because of you, and freely, all because of Him. Until you understand that, you are not going to see the love of God to the degree that you could see it if you would understand that truth until you see that God just chose you because of who he is and not because of who you are. When you get a hold of that truth, it is shocking to the heart. It is nothing in me. It is all him that chose me. I did not choose him. It's then that the love and the grace of God is just penetrating and causing you to say, oh my God, why would you do that for me? You see, what we're going to look at next week is we're going to actually define not just how election works, but we're going to talk about what is the very purpose of God in election. What is that purpose that that verse was highlighting? We're going to see what that purpose is, and it's going to perfectly line up with what we've been talking about. Would you please stand? I just want, you want to come and pray. The altars are open. We're going to sing a song. There'll be an elder over here to my right if you need somebody to pray with you. Let's, let's pray corporately and then worship and you can come and pray if you like.
Father, oh Lord, how how inscrutable are your ways. Beyond fully tracing out, Lord, how inscrutable are your ways. For all things is from you and to you and through you and for you. I did not do anything to merit myself to you. You, throughout all of eternity past, had elected me and then in a incredible work of grace predestined my destiny and then in a moment of history called me to yourself so effectively that it woke me up from death and I saw you who you were in your son and it was irresistible to me and you brought me unto justification by giving me the faith to believe. And when you had done that, I did believe and I chose you. And the result was justification and the guarantee will be glorification. And I know that's true for so many across this room. And I'm praying this morning that you just help us to see that. And if there's some here that are not uh, saved, that you would be calling them right now with that effectual call. Drawing them to yourself and everyone that you call I know will come. In the name of Jesus. We commit it to you. Amen.